Hi, it's Steve Indig at Sport Law. Leave me a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Steve. It's Dina. You aren't going to believe what just came across my desk. We need to chat. Give me a call. Welcome to the latest episode of Sportopia. We're so excited to share our knowledge and have conversations about healthy human sport. This episode, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a leader in sport right now. So Steve, um, wow, what a what a big juicy uh, topic for for the times, right? And And I'm just curious, you know, we could take this conversation in so many places, maybe we go meta, Maybe we hover over the sector together and just sit with, you know, what are some of the systemic challenges of being a leader in sport right now? Uh, do, do you have maybe a thought or two about, about what I, that might look like? I, I'm laughing because I think trying to do our podcast within 30 to 60 minutes might be a bit challenging with this kind of topic that we're discussing uh, right now. Being a leader in sport it's it's a little scary right now with the climate that sport is in. Uh, I think you know this, Dina. When I first got involved with sport law at the time, the Center for Sport and Law, I always thought this was a bit of a, a stop for me. I would be here for a couple of years and then I would leverage the experience that I had into becoming an executive director or CEO of a, a PSO or, or an NSO or an MSO. <clears throat> and what I quickly realized is that being a sport leader is extremely difficult and is even more difficult in today's climate. The expectations of knowledge that we're supposed to have is a little incomprehensible. And when I talk about it from my perspective, from the legal perspective, you're asking a leader to understand privacy laws, confidentiality, conflict of interest, uh, governance, employment law, human resources, complaint management, and now the ever-evolving and quickly changing world of safe sport um, with the establishment of the Office of the Sport Integrity Commission and the the alignment that, that a lot of NSOs are trying to implement, as well as we're unknown at this point as to what the provincial governments or territorial governments are going to say with respect to safe sport. So it's an it's an extremely challenging time, more so than ever in sport to uh, to have all of that expertise. And of course, you actually need to know how to run your sport. And that's something that interesting enough, we have, I, I believe, 18 or 19 people working within sport law. And we have the ability to employ that many people, but we actually don't talk about basketball or swimming or volleyball. It's all things that occur in the office environment or in the cultural environment or, or in the boardroom. And I think right now it's something that I've, I've discovered fairly quickly. It was easier to tell people what to do than to have to do it myself in sport. It's just, it's just extremely challenging. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on a, a more leadership side than the legal side, but the legal side is is keeping a lot of us extremely busy right now. Yeah, I can meet you there. It's really a difficult to bear witness, as you and I do and, and our, our team members, to so much uh, anxiety and frustration and fear 
and, and the depletion in the sector that I've been playing in for 31 years has never been this low. I, I've never seen so many people uh, at a loss for where do we go next? So, so a couple of things that maybe I would, I would um, amplify from what you've shared. I think that it is a, a question of being able to press pause and ask ourselves the system, which is invisible. And you, you, you mentioned that, right? A lot of the stuff that we're grappling with right now uh, is invisible to, to most of us. We, we take for granted that we're in this ecosystem called sport. And just because we inherited it, that it has to be this way. So as a student of sport, I remember in the 1970s, um, I was really young at the time, but that's when sport started to shift, right? In preparation for the hosting of the 76 Olympic games in Montreal. And at the time, the conventional wisdom is we're gonna create this more modern expression of a sports system that would be more aligned, more integrated. And in fact, you know, countries from around the world kind of looked at Canada as being a global leader in a more modern expression of sport. Now, what I would offer is those leaders at the time, however well-intentioned, never said that this was going to be the answer for sport for all times. And so I know, and, and I remember when I first entered sport in 91, we had more time and we had, you know, a reasonable sense of what would be likely over over a 10-year period and that's where quadrennial planning came came to be with sport organizations now if you if you think that you can reasonably foresee what's going to happen three years from now show me your crystal ball because as a as a person who likes to read the tea leaves i'm really struggling with what is sport actually going to look like feel like sound like and and lived at the community level where, where I spent a lot of time, you know, watching my kids still play sport as I know you do. So I would say we need to grapple with systemic issues that need systemic solutions. And back to, you know, our singular focus right now uh, on safe sport, I would say it's appropriate for us to put in place all of these risk mitigation measures to ensure that anybody who is intentionally trying to maltreat someone needs to feel like this is not a place where you're welcomed. And I would say that we now need to broaden the conversation to understanding that the system and structures that created sport is not the one that we need to take us to the next shore. And, and so that's where my, my head is at, Steve. There's, there's a couple of things that you, you bring up I want to address, and then I want to flip a question back to you in your comms with your comms hat on you know, you, you brought up some of the systematic, you know, current environment and the changes that might be necessary when we, you know, as you know, most of our conversations are with CEOs, ED, presidents, senior level staff. And one of the queries that I've been asking a lot is, you know, how much of your time is, is managing your board? And I've actually heard as high as 95% of my time is managing mm -hmm. my board. And, and I know you and I have talked about trying to reform governance and trying to, to make people think differently and looking for people with a particular skill set, trying to be more diverse, gender representative, things like that. But we still seem to be hitting the wall that, well, Dina, you can't be on the board because you don't know basketball. And, and one of the things that I always like to say is I always, I always suggest being a board member is boring. 
<laughs> because you should be talking about strategic plans and budgets and policy development and not necessarily who's going to get drafted, who's on our national team. That's more of the operational side. And I, I think slowly we are getting there and seeing nominations committees being established, screening candidates, making recommendations as to the slate of, of uh, qualified people that we want to see on our board. You know, so I really love to see sports start engaging in that more holistically. And I understand it takes time. I, I, I've chaired several nominations committee and yes, it takes hours on hours to screen and interview candidates to find out if they're if they're going to be good for your sport and, and be a good board member. So, you know, that's one challenge I think we know that's that's existing right now. The other thing I actually uh, came across is Dina yesterday picking up my kids at school and my son asked his friend if he was going to play a particular sport. And he said, my dad won't let me. I'm not happy with the way that sport is being played in the media. And I thought that was an interesting um, comment that a, a 11 year old boy was prevented from playing a sport because of the negativity that's being expressed in the media about sport right now and how that's having an impact on young kids who really, as we always like to say, just want to play. Um, I wonder what your thoughts, Dina, are on the messaging coming out in the media right now and, and maybe some of the you know, we we can maybe start telling a different story about all the great positive things. Yes, we understand sports in a bit of a a tough situation right now and, and maybe going through some change and some needed change. But it was a little heartbreaking for me to hear that a 12, you know, an 11 year old boy was prevented by his parents from playing a sport because of the reputation of an organization. Mm, yeah, I can I can feel that, too, as a parent. And I, I would say, amen. I actually think it's it's fantastic that parents are questioning, are, are uh, paying attention to what is the environment that I want to put my child in and what are the qualifications of the people that are going to be in a leadership position, you know, supporting my children to ideally thrive, not just survive. So I think it's great that parents are coming equipped with maybe some more thoughtful questions around who's the coach, what's the philosophy and, and ethos of the club, what are the ways in which the clubs are, are managing uh, not just their financial accountability, uh, but also, you know, are they measuring more than just the medals, the hardwares that they're bringing home? Does that club care about measuring the experience that their child is having inside their club. And so a new triple bottom line, if you will, right, that needs to emerge, I think, as part of a systemic shift, you call it transition. Yeah, I, I say we're in liminal space, we're not here, and we're not there, we're somewhere in between. And when we are in transition, Steve, you know, I'm borrowing from my work as a grief coach, when we're in transition, it's hard, we're uncomfortable, we're uncertain, we're on unstable ground. And so it's really important for us to be self-compassionate with ourselves and also really kind with others as we move through this liminal space together. And you and I know that it's far easier to blame than to sit with the shame, the shame of my inaction, this, the shame of staying silent, uh, the shame of contributing to maybe what we now know as outdated, you know, poor choices, bad practices. And, and so we look to blame 
or explain ourselves out of a situation. And I think that I do a lot of work with young emerging leaders, and I'm a parent of, of kids who are 17 to 23. So I have a, a real pulse on that age group. And I would say that what they want most in leaders is authenticity, like show up and be you. And they can smell when people are trying to, you know, present themselves as something that they aren't, uh, that they are not, or trying to force a narrative that isn't, that doesn't feel genuine. So I think that that's where we, we really need to be congruent in the media. We need authentic leaders who are unafraid to actually step into their full power. And, and I know you want to ask me a question about, you know, that kind of leadership capacity. So maybe say a little bit about, you know, what I've shared and, and I have a fresh story. I just came off a conversation with 10 extraordinary women leaders who are, who are, you know, across this country who joined with me and, and Loren uh, to have this beautiful conversation. So um, yeah, I'm curious what you thought, what your thoughts are, Steve. I always like the way we play uh, pickleball. We play, we use the example of pickleball. It's very popular these days. And uh, I know you and I both play. So uh, <clears throat> you've hit the ball back to me. And, and one of the things that you bring up is sport leaders feeling depleted. And one of the things I like, Dina, about working together is we both bring our, our different skill sets to the table, which are almost night and day, left and right. And we always say ying to our yang. And, and you come in looking at this from a perspective of what can I do to, you know, move sport forward. And unfortunately, as I've said before, I, I get involved a lot in, in crisis management or reactive type of work. But one of the questions that we, you and I have talked about is why are sport leaders feeling depleted? And if you were to ask me to write a press release, I'd probably be nerve wracking, nervous. It would take me three hours. I'd want to make sure it's perfect. And I know with your background, you'd write it in 10 minutes and it would be out the door. And I, I think that's what sport in some respects is expecting. And it's unfortunate or unnecessary because the people, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, may not have the skill set. I did a sport management undergrad in university, and we learned about running tournaments and marketing and securing sponsorship and strategic planning, but we sure as hell didn't talk about managing a sexual assault case. We sure as hell didn't talk about managing any sort of complaint for that matter. And, and I think that leaders have to be cognitive of what they can do and what they can't do and what, and when they're caught in over their heads. And I always call it the 90-10 rule. If you're proactive in the work, then it's going to cost 10% of your time or 10% of your resources. But being reactive and being put in a position where we don't have the proper piece, people in place or the proper policies in place, we're looking at a 90% commitment from, from time or, or expense. And I think sport these days, of course, has to recognize that. I think the establishment of independent third parties for complaints, particularly related to abuse, is, is supporting that. But having leaders recognize what they're good at and where they need support is so crucial. And I recognize that majority of sports, particularly at the PSO and NSO level, may have one staff. And if they're lucky, they have three. Yes, there are some who have you know 10 to 20 but that's not the norm. But again, being prepared and, and helping manage those issues to which really they don't have the expertise or the uh, the education or experience to deal with it is, is just so important. 
so I'm going to flip that back to you and, and talk about, you could talk about maybe again, how you see that sport leaders are depleted and what we can do or, or what they can do to try and create a, a better environment for themselves. Mm. Well, you know, I, I, a couple of things that are, that are coming to mind and, and maybe I'll reference this experience that I just had this morning, which was amazing. You know, there's about 10 of us on the call and these women, um, there's a particular need, I think, for a lot of women in the sector to gather. And we actually called it the gathering. It was an invitation to these women who are feeling the feels maybe at a level of uh, depth um, because the, the more feminine energy in the system really hasn't been rewarded or recognized or invited. And so a lot of these female leaders were expressing like beautiful things. And there was some emotion around that. I'm feeling vulnerable. Am I the leader that is needed to lead us through this? Who am I to lead? I'm so exhausted. I'm still feeling the experience of, of the tax that was created through the pandemic and sport wasn't great before the pandemic. And then a lot of these mothers on the call were also feeling very, um, porous because they they bore witness to their employees feeling like really heavy and burdened and the next generation their own children who've had to work through this really difficult experience uh you know called the the global pandemic so in our conversation we talked about um you know what what researcher Yanif Bullman speaks to as the shattering of our assumptions which is basically this worldview that we have, that we're privileged to have in North America, that if we work really hard and we're a good person, then bad things aren't gonna happen to us. And you and I know that is not true. It never was, but we've been sold this kind of bag of goods. So in this gathering, we actually, and it's this process that we've created at Sport Law that is peer to peer. So it's people gathering together who want to be real with each other, authentic, not having to preface everything or explain ourselves or justify real leaders that are gathering and being honest and open and candid and vulnerable. The experience, it was one hour, went over by about five minutes because you and I know how bad I am at keeping time. And Lorraine joined me because she was speaking to them about the sport leaders retreat that she held with technical leaders and coaches. And you should have felt like the emotion, right? That Lorraine was saying, you know, bearing witness to coaches who were coming to her as part of a remedial project or coaches that were this close to being fired because there were some complaints about their poor communication or coaches who have been fired because of a misplaced, you know, comment on social media. So these are real humans who are feeling incredibly um, shamed, ashamed of, of what it is that they may have done or said that caused any form of harm. And alongside that is this real need to actually lead in a much more transparent, authentic way. So I would say, you know, to sport leaders who are feeling depleted, here's what I would invite them to do. Hold self-care as an ethical imperative. Really let that sink in, Steve. Whose job is it to take care of myself? So when, when my teachers were telling me, if you hold your self-care as an ethical experience and an ethical experiment and an ethical commitment, you're not going to make excuses for not taking care of your needs. 
And this is where the work that we do around leadership development, bringing in the NOVA profile to create shared language and ensuring that we're measuring more than just outcomes, so medals and performance, we're actually starting to measure the experience that people are having together. When we start doing that, we're going to feel fuller in our experience. And what I know to be true is a lot of the leaders that are coming to us, and you referenced it, aren't being taught what Jim Collins, the researcher and academic, you know, the author of Good to Great and Level 5 Leadership, you know, he, he called it the, the soft skills. We need these soft skills that are foundational skills to be able to restore health and hope and trust in the sector. And we can't compliance our way out of this. No amount of policies and procedures and compliances are going to help us really restore our trust. What is going to help us restore trust, and this is what we talked about today, is the ability to have courageous conversations. And it might sound something like this. Hey, Steve, I was really hurt when you said you know, X to me last week. And I'm wondering, are you open to having a conversation about that? Because I care about you as a human being. And I want you to know that what you said really hurt me. That's the kind of skill and competency development that we need to equip our leaders and our coaches uh, with. Those are, those are to me, some of the foundational skills. So I, I see I you love- smiling. <laughs> I, I'm smiling, Dina, because I love the way that we we absolutely think differently. And I, I totally understand, appreciate everything you just said. And I think one of the things that I always try and preach is reasonableness. And, and by saying, you know, hey, Dina, you said I said this to you and let's have a conversation. That would be two reasonable people um, coming to terms relatively quickly. In my world, unfortunately, is I'm afraid to say anything because they're going to sue me or they're going to file a complaint. And, and that's where my mind goes. So yes, I think absolutely that's a great skill to have um, cautiously or, or, or use, being used in the right setting. Let me ask you a larger question. You know, is sport in a crisis right now? Or is this something that's been, you know, over amplified by, by extreme media attention? Um, where are we? Where is it really that bad? Mm. Yeah, I, I love that you're asking this. So what is a crisis, right? <laughs> it's it's a moment that matters. And, and it's a it's a it's a public kind of, you know, accounting for maybe sins of the past or things that we've tolerated that maybe we shouldn't have been tolerating. And so for me, I actually I don't call this a crisis. I call this a reckoning. This is a, a moment that really matters. And we are in transition. We're supposed to be here because as you and I know, sport has been privileged for far too long. And so a really helpful and healthy uh, practice is to ask yourself, does our leadership actually reflect the people we're here to serve, right? Do we have diversity in the leadership? And so once we start uh, asking that, I, I think things open up a little bit. So I, I'm not sure that I would call it, you know, a crisis feels bad. I, I think there's a beautiful opportunity for us to make amends, to apologize for uh, the times that we've contributed by staying silent or being complicit in or being helpful towards, you know, some of the stuff that's keeping us stuck. I think, um, I think that we, 
we actually and, and absolutely need to reckon with those things that have been outdated for far too long. And then we also have to be bearers of hope because when people are in crisis or when they are in this liminal space, they're, they're feeling so uncertain. And in my call earlier today with these women, one of them said, my parasympathetic system is like on fight, flight, freeze, faint. I'm my heart rates up. I can't make really good decisions. So what I would say is hope is the one thing that can change everything. So for, for me, I see this as both an opportunity, a reckoning. It's about time that we're, we're here. Um, and I'm really hopeful, Steve, that we're going to get through this with our souls intact. Right. Well, I wonder, I wonder, Dina, if we can't start using a different word. Right. So rather than saying sports in a crisis, why can't we say sports in an opportunity? And as you just said, it's an opportunity to look at the things that we've been doing for tens, twenties, fifty, hundreds of years that maybe aren't uh, the same today. We, We know a lot of complaints, particularly maltreatment complaints that are coming forward are based on conduct that occurred 10, 15, 20 years ago, which arguably could have been socially acceptable at the time, but being held to today's standards are absolutely not. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine that experience that anybody had uh, is if it was a negative one, but what I'm trying to get to is to say, rather than, as you just said, there's a crisis, which gives us heart palpitations, makes us nervous, makes us unsure of our thinking looking at it as an opportunity to say, okay, we are in a state of change. We need to change. We need to be up to date with the times. What do we need to do? And I know a couple of topics that you and I address all the time are governance, our volunteers, our policy development, our implementation of those policies. And, you know, let's start, let's start high, Dina. Right now, we know sport is, and I'm going to steal one of the stats you've told me, 80 to 90% 90 of sport is facilitated by volunteers. We know that, we rely on it, we need that, and financially, probably sport couldn't sustain having to pay all the people it needs to pay in, in the current environment. But getting the right volunteers does seem to be an area where we can focus, In addition to the levels of bureaucracy that we have, you and I have talked about this. There is pick a sport. There's 10 board members at the NSO. There's 13 PTOs. That's 130 people. And then there might be, you know, 600 to 1,000 clubs, depending on the sport. So we're talking from a governance perspective, 6,110 people. That's a lot of people to have an impact on, on a particular sport. What do you think, Dina, about trying to streamline the way we operate. Yeah, I I love that question. And that's exactly what we were inviting people to do when we wrote the first reimagining sport blog, where we looked at other models. And, you know, I call it the first brave few who dared kind of pause and ask themselves, hold on, are we structured the way that a 21st century sport organization with increased amount of accountancy and accountability needs to be structured to meet the moment, right? To meet public expectations, because you and I uh, would agree that sport, you know, ought to be a right. Sport is this public asset, this untapped gem that can, can absolutely change the lives of people. That's why I work in sport and I don't work 
in another sector. That's why my kids all enjoyed sport and, and you yourself. So I, I think that if we really, really want sport to meet its full potential, you know, we need to reimagine what would it look like? How would we structure sport differently if we, if we valued it the way we would other kind of institutions like healthcare and food safety and education? So I kind of hold that up as a invitation to a conversation. So that would be the first thing. And then back to, you know, these, the beautiful volunteers, right? The well-intentioned heart-centered volunteers who often feel forced into a board position when they really don't want to be there, right? If I had a penny for every time a board of directors said, well, I, I, I was the last person standing or I was voluntold into this position. Um, most of them will tell you they do not have the time, the money, or sorry, not the money, but it really is their time. So the time and the competency and the confidence to actually serve as a fiduciary, right? A keeper of the faith in these organizations. So if my tea leaves are right, and I wrote a blog about this, you know, around, uh, around what we are anticipating. So, and I called it our reliance on fossil fuel. It's sports version of a reliance on fossil fuel, Steve, and that's our over-reliance on, on volunteers. And so if it's true that A, you know, we keep churning up these volunteers because most of them are there. Why? Because their children are involved in the sport. Second of all, most of the people who are on boards, especially at the community level, are, are parents of children who are representative athletes, right, on the competition side. So you're already skewed there. And the, and the, the positions are rife with conflict. And the third reality, the most important one is this. The next generation does not want to volunteer the way the current one does. So to me, the biggest, if there is a crisis in sport, it's the lack of volunteers. I see it coming. We're already starting to see, you know, nominations committee going, ooh, like, where are all the people? And if there are a lot of people, our question is, do these people understand, you know, the legal implications of what it means to serve in this way? So I, I'm, I'm really um, excited about, you know, the shift in language. I love that you said, what happens if we seize the moment, if we meet this moment from a place of opportunity? Everything shifts, right? Well, it becomes exciting and optimistic. Um, you know, just changing that word for me was like, oh, I can, I want to be in this space. I want to help make that change. Being involved in a crisis uh, that's not fun. I don't want to be part of that. So I, I do agree. I like changing the word. You know, I'm laughing, Dina, because you talk about the, the 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 reliance of volunteers that may be diminishing. You know, when I do, as you know, I do a lot of governance work and write hundreds of bylaws. And and part of my intake is establishing quorum with an organization. What is the number of people that you can have a valid meeting without three people to getting together and, and overturning the organization. And we have clubs and PSOs with thousands of members, and we always end up with a number around 10, you know, uh -huh. so the number of people who actually want to come and exercise their democratic right to vote in the board, it's like peanuts. It's like 1% of the membership. And I also think a bit of change is, you know, sport is it's people are looking at it as a business. I want to come play soccer on Sunday from one to two. I want to have a good field. I want to have a good referee. I want to have a good quality game. And I want to go home and then play the afternoon with my children. They're not that concerned about the governance and the operations and the budget and the strap plans. 
So I agree, things are definitely changing in that. And that's one of the conversations I do have with clients on governance reform is to say, who do you want electing your board, amending your bylaws and appointing your auditor? Those are really the three things that, that members do. And you know, doesn't need to be every single person who kicks the ball at your soccer club. Um, so there are different philosophies out there of trying to engage people. And, and we know trying to get 30 people together is probably a little easier than trying to get 2,500. And most sports don't want 2,500 people at their AGM because they would be hosting it at the Air Canada Centre or Rogers Stadium downtown. So it's a really interesting conversation that we might be able to streamline sport to allow those leaders, you know, go full circle here, Dina, we started talking about, you know, what it means to be a leader in sport, to give them the opportunity and the tools to be successful. Yeah, I, I think that's great, Steve. And what I would say, you know, as leaders who are listening to this and, and who are feeling depleted and scared and anxious and frustrated and wondering, is there a place for me to lead? in this, in, during this time. So a couple of, of really helpful things, and we're going to, in our show notes, we're going to uh, link to some relevant blogs that we hope helps you maybe make sense of the complexities that you, you said yes to. So I'm going to leave you with three tips. The first is uh, start using the word I'm choosing to stay as opposed to I have to stay. I'm choosing to acknowledge this situation as being really difficult and I'm still hopeful as opposed to I have to, you know, uh, deal with this crisis and just notice what happens to your own parasympathetic system, like your own body as you start to choose to stay in. Because if you're choosing to stay in, then tip number two will be expand your capacity to hold complexity beyond a binary worldview. Meaning not everything is black or white, right or wrong, right? Us versus them. And yet, and we've got a couple of blogs for you to, to kind of benefit from this. The world needs for us at this level of complexity in this kind of e global ecosystem for us to be able to hold complexity from a much more expansive way. And that requires a whole new kind of way of being as leaders. So that's tip number uh, two. And tip number three is this one, because I, I want to respond to, you know, the, the beautiful conversation I had with these 10 other women. And in the end, it came down to, can I hold conversation? Can I be in difficult experiences? Here's what I know to be true. hundred percent of the conversation you're refusing to have, it's going to come back and bite you in the, you know what? So what is our muscles? What is our capacity to be able to be in real conversations with people you care about? And how are you contributing to the dysfunction in your relationship by staying silent? So being able to, you know, hold the conversation. And, and what I would end with is, you know, and again, my teachings in my grief and loss work has been incredibly restorative for me. And one of the greats, like he's an international expert, he, he talks about dignity in care, and he speaks to the platinum rule. So most of us have grown up, Steve, with the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated, right? Your mom, dad, I'm sure taught you that because, you know, I feel that in you. Well, here's the platinum rule. In, in through our leadership work, what we're trying to do is elevate people's capacity to treat people the way they want to be treated. 
And that's a whole other way of, of being as a leader. You have to adopt a culturally humble quality of presence that has you, you know, kind of being curious about the other human. So I would say those three tips of, of really being able to um, be self-aware and, and be kind and be able to hold complexity differently, and then to treat people the way they want to be treated. If, if we do just that while we're in this liminal space, I think we're going to be able to get to the, the borders that are more hope-filled, uh, hope-filled. Yeah. I'm going to play off that, Dina, and maybe I'll come up with a couple things too. Um, one, you know, I think I like, I think we, I, something triggered for me when we, when we turned crisis into opportunity, it, it had a impact of my, uh, on my body and my mind and, and became more positive and, and something I want to be involved with. So I hope sport leaders will take a look at the current environment as an opportunity to make change. I hope people are open-minded to know that the way we do things, the way we did things may not be the way we do them moving forward and being open-minded to change. Uh, try it. And you know what, if you don't like it and it didn't work, you can always change, revert back to whatever, you know, whatever did work. So, and I'd also lastly, just remind sport leaders that there are resources available to them to help manage issues that they may not have the experience or the education to deal with. Um, and, and they're very accessible. I, I, I hope they're accessible, including us, of course. So I'm going to let you uh, do the outtake here, Dina, but uh, I really like the fact that we can continue to have these chats. And I know our, our back and forth of banter is getting a little bit better the more we do these. So uh, I want to just thank people for listening and uh, we'll see you on the next uh, on the next podcast. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. And thanks to everyone for listening. You know, we really look forward to not only sharing our vision of Sportopia, but also collaborating with our community to elevate sport. So we really need for you to send us your thoughts. Uh, so, and you can email us at hello at sportlaw.ca, or you can connect with us on social media and that's at sportlaw.ca to let us know what you want to hear next. Uh, so our next episode is going to be on navigating a crisis, or maybe we will scratch that out and say navigating an opportunity. Exactly. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, listen, everyone, thank you so much. Stay tuned for the episode. And until then, be well. 